Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. If you haven't already, turn in your copy of the scriptures. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. Not an easy passage to read, and if you just as you were reading along, you're probably going, whoa, what are we going to talk about this morning? It's actually, once you pick at it a little bit, it's pretty straightforward. I love kids. Three little babies in my house, three grandkids now. Not all in my house, but enjoying that. Hope to meet one of them soon, still in the NICU for a while. Thanks for praying for little Selah. I had eight of my own children, so I have three school-age kids at home. We homeschooled them. We taught them many things. We had the privilege of teaching them their ABCs and one, two, threes. Taught my son how to throw a curveball, how to throw a fastball, how to throw a straight change. Taught my kids how to shoot, sports, taught them the Bible. It's fun to teach kids things, isn't it? Some things kids don't need to be taught. They just do it all on their own. <laughs> they cry. <laughs> I never taught them to cry. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> they eat. Never really had to teach them. I never taught them to steal food or lie about it. Who took the cookies? Not me. <laughs> it's just it's behind your back. <laughs> One thing in particular we didn't have to teach them. An expression that we all say. That's not fair. <laughs> Everybody says, that's not fair. Everybody knows fairness seems to be something that the human, humanness in us craves. It seems woven into our DNA, not just of children, but of all of us to crave fairness. What's another word for fairness? Justice. Hey, make that right. I don't like it when things aren't right. In fact, we learned last week in Pastor Brian's message, Ecclesiastes 3.11, speaking of God, said that God has put, has making, not only makes everything beautiful in its time, but he has put eternity into the heart of man. As I prepared this week and considered what Solomon transitions to after that passage, I began to think, that some of this natural moral understanding that we have seems to be universal in humanity is part of God putting eternity in our hearts. I used to have a t-shirt that said, how can a moral wrong be a civil right? And I just, you know, we, we think about things that way. The expression, that's not fair. Oh, we wish everything was fair. I want fair teams. I want fairness in sports. I want fairness with the promotion at work and on and on and on. Right? I wish there was fairness in the distribution of pizza at the Ocean House. <laughs> but there's not. That's not fair. Oh, we wish everything was fair, right? And one place that we think and would expect to find fairness and rightness and justice would be in the nation's court system, wouldn't we? There's a symbol that transcends nations, that captures the hope of people that they have for this kind of justice and fairness and righteousness. It's the statue of Lady Justicia, or she's known today simply Lady Justice. The Lady Justice statue is usually found in the form of a woman, maybe standing or sitting. 
She's typically dressed in a toga-type robe, maybe barefoot. Her hair might be flowing over her shoulders. It might be braided in a bun around her head. She holds a balance, a two-part scale in one hand and a sword in the other. Usually the scales are in the left hand, the sword is in the right. This is not always the case. And usually she wears a blindfold over her eyes. And those are the three symbols of justice that she embodies. The balanced scales. These represent impartiality. The obligation of the law through its representatives to weigh the evidence presented at the court. Each side of a legal case needs to be looked at. Comparisons must be made in order for justice to be done. The scales. Number two, the sword. This item symbolizes enforcement and respect. It means that justice stands by its decision. It stands by its ruling. It is able to take action. The fact that the sword is unsheathed and very visible is a sign that justice is obvious, transparent, expected. It's not an implement of fear, but it sits there ready and known. A double-edged blade signifies that justice might rule against either party once the evidence has been seen, and it's bound to enforce the ruling as well as protect or defend the innocent party. And lastly, the blindfold. I pretty well understood the first two images here, but I learned something here. The first, this first appeared on a lady justice statue in the 16th century and is used intermittently. It's not an original symbol. Apparently, the original significance was that the judicial system was tolerating abuse or ignorance of aspects of the law. So they put the blindfold on her to actually criticize the system. In modern times, we've come to understand and think of the blindfold as representing impartiality, objectivity of the law. It doesn't let outside factors like politics, wealth, control, fame influence the decision of what's right and wrong. Justice is blind. And it's against this backdrop that I come to our text this morning. Solomon has just shared a beautiful poem with us, teaching about how God is in control of everything. God designs everything. And is working everything out according to the wise counsel of his own will, his own pleasure. You remember the poem last week? And in this passage, it's as if Solomon is living rent-free in the mind of every 20th century atheist and wants to anticipate their objection. Hey, if God is in control of everything, if God is all-powerful, if God is all-living, if God is all-loving, if God can do anything, if God can fix anything, can somebody tell me what's up with all the injustice in the world? You've heard that question before. And that's what Solomon addresses here this morning. Is this important? It's crucially important. In fact, last week, Pastor likened the work of God, maybe you'll remember this, to a beautiful tapestry. If you look at one side, you see this beautiful artistry, the mural of the grand vision and picture, the beauty of the designer. But if you look at the other side, all you see are blurry colors, hanging strings, and an incomplete understanding of what's really happening. That's nice in concept, but in my life, I don't get either picture. My life at this moment is where I cannot see either side at all. I'm in the loom. (laughs) My life is 
strings and needles. <laughs> I'm in the flow of time and here it comes. It is so nice to say, oh yes, I could see that. Aren't there situations in your life where you're in the loom? <laughs> Life's being woven around you, let's be honest. No perspective. I need help and answer from an outside source. I need perspective I can't get from myself. I'll never find it. That's why this is so important. I'm glad we have it this morning. Well, it's not easy to preach Ecclesiastes just chronologically, verse by verse. It's way more of a thematic book, a cyclical book, a poetic book. So I'm going to tell you how I'm going to organize my thoughts this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what Solomon sees first. Then we'll look what Solomon thinks. Kind of what he concludes, what he assesses, what he decides about what he sees. You see stuff, and then you're like, Oh, yeah, I understand that. And then lastly, we're going to look at what Solomon tells us to do, what he advises us to do. So he looks at stuff. He thinks about stuff, what's going on. And he says, this is how I should react to what I saw and thought about. So one last time, what Solomon sees, what he thinks, and what he advises. All right, let's jump into the text. Oh, one more thing. Before we jump into the text and the meaning of this, I need to take you through a little bit of biblical backdrop. We're going to look at the text, not verse by verse, but kind of at a big picture for a moment. And let's look at the biblical backdrop and structure. This will help you follow along as I teach this morning. I want to show you how I'm dividing the passage up. We'll look at chapter 3, the rest of it, the first three verses of chapter 4, and then the last, and the verses 4 through 6. Why will we do it that way? Well, you look at chapter 3 and verse 16, just for a second, Solomon says, Moreover, I saw... Now, literally, this means I saw something else, too. He's connecting his thoughts from last week. We know this because in verse 17, he uses this expression again from last week. And he says, there is a time for every matter, for every work. Do you remember that from last week? A time to live, a time to die. Okay, all of you are out there kind of humming right now, right? A time to... Okay, Carl, I, I paid it off. All right, I'm good. All right. All right, thank you. All right. But we understand then this beautiful poem that, uh, that Solomon wrote to express all of life, that everything is designed for a season and a time. And so Solomon in that same says, oh, and I saw something else too. And then in his rationale, he uses that time expression again. So that's going to be one section. Chapter 4, verse 1, you see, again I saw. Do you see that? The repeated phrase. Solomon was a very observant guy, huh? <laughs> he saw a lot of stuff. And just quickly, uh, at chapter 4, verse 4, he says, well, then I saw. So Solomon says three things that we're going to look at this morning, and that's going to shape my thoughts and help you follow along and help you see a little bit of the structure of Ecclesiastes. I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. Now, the second thing I want to look at quickly is just the biblical backdrop that Solomon inserted in the passage that you may not see at first. There is more here than meets the eye. But I also believe that as soon as you look for it, you'll go, oh man, I should have seen that. So I'm wondering, do the words Solomon chose, if you're looking at your copy of the scripture, chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to do a little independent Bible study or with your neighbor. Do you see anything in chapter 3, verses 16 through 21 that reminds you of any other part of the Bible? One specific part of the Bible. Just look for a minute, and then I'll help you with it, all right? Chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, if you have a copy in front of you, just look. Any words remind you of other words? Any concepts remind you of other concepts? 
All right. Maybe you found something, maybe you don't. Let me help you. What if I reminded you that the Hebrew word for man is the word Adam? What if I helped you remember that when he says in verse 18, I said with my heart in regard to the children of Adam, Adam is the word for man. And what if I reminded you in verse 19 that what happens to the children of man was to happen to the beasts, and I remind you that was the word Adam. That might stir something in your brain a little bit. What about the word dust? Anything come to mind? Genesis, God made man out of the dust of the ground. That's right. And when God cursed man in Genesis 3, he said to Adam, Because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. A little work reference there. For you were taken out of it, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Dust is the word that reminds us of Genesis 1 through 3. How about this word beast? What did God make? God made all the beasts of the field. In fact, when it was time to give Adam a wife, God paraded all the beasts of the field by Adam to make sure Adam knew there was not a suitable helper, a suitable partner for Adam among all the beasts of the field. Well, why was that? Well, it's because we're made in the image of God and animals are not. There's a huge difference between man and animals. Not just in our genetic makeup, not just in the complexity of our organizational structure, but friends, in spiritual significance and meaning. This is a backdrop we have to get, or you will not, the text will make so much more sense to you after we've gone through this, I promise. Man not knowing any difference between beasts and himself. Remember that verse, God is testing them. Will they think that they are just beasts or that they are special? This is a huge theme in Genesis 1 and 2. It's a big deal. How about one more word? How about the word breath? The word breath in verse 19. They all have the same breath. Remind you of anything from Genesis? God breathed into man the breath of life. Not just the concept of life from Genesis 1 and 2, but another concept we'll look at this morning, the opposite of that, the concept of death. This morning helps us understand the ultimate thoughts that are going through Solomon's head as he writes Ecclesiastes. I don't even have time to take us through, we have communion this morning and a lot to do, words like judgment, spirit, work. Do you feel those from Genesis 1, 2, and 3? All of the rest of that sitting there. But if you know the story of the creation account, and you know the story of the fall into sin in Genesis 1 through 3, then now you see my point, and you understand that Solomon had been doing his devotions in Genesis for the last few weeks before he penned these words. That's maybe a way to think about that. This was in his brain. This was his Bible, and he was thinking about how the word of God that he knew, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, played out in his life at that time. All right. Well, like I said, we want to look at what Solomon saw, what he thought, and what he counsels us. What does Solomon see? Chapter 3, verse 16. And I saw something else. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. 
And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Justice and righteousness. This is the expression from Isaiah, from Amos, from Zechariah. This is the cry of, Jer- of Jeremiah. This is what was going on wrong in the Hebrew culture. This place of justice, this place of righteousness. What, what is the place? That's why I started with Lady Justice. In the Hebrew culture, this is the courts. And Solomon walks in, in his observation of life, and says, Man, even in the courts where you would expect justice, in the place where you would expect justice, there's wickedness. In the place where you would expect rightness, righteousness, cultural sensitivity, how can a moral right be a civil wrong? How can a moral wrong be a civil right? (laughs) Solomon says, this is not right. Friends, he's magnifying the fall here. (laughs) I mean, how bad is the fall, really? What change did it make to the world? Well, pretty significant. So Solomon is upset. Have you ever received injustice? Have you ever been treated wrongly? Have you ever made appeals and got nowhere? Work, courts, friends, social. You remember trying out for a sports team, getting cut, knowing you were better? Some kids playing ahead of you. Who got the scholarship instead of you? I mean, this is life, isn't it? We feel this. This is what Solomon sees. He sees a second thing. Chapter 4, verse 1. He sees oppression in the culture. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold. He said, and, and look closely. You know what behold means? Look past just the oppression. The tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. You ever felt that? Your friends who feel that? Family members who feel that? Sometimes I wonder if we even understand this passage at all in America. The depth of this and the tears. Because you know what? Right now in 21st century, and this is loaded, guys. Do you understand where I could go with this if I had more than oh, 20 minutes? Okay, we got to move. But oppression, marginalization, intersectionality, who's the real victim? Who has the privilege? Uh, talk about culturally relevant text. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's a good thing I only have 35 minutes this morning. I might make a mess and leave someone else to clean it up. Solomon's, my only point there to raise all of that is that Solomon's not indifferent to any of that. Do you understand? He cares about justice and righteousness, and he doesn't like oppression when people have no comfort. And what a horrible thing to have no comfort. Now, it's no surprise here. If the courts are not doing what they should be doing in terms of enforcing laws and treating people fairly, then what's the society going to do? Whatever they want. 
In fact, Solomon, a little later in Ecclesiastes 8.11, listen to this verse. He's a student of criminal justice, I guess. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So if you have the court system and the justice system not enforcing fairness and righteousness and justice, then what are the people going to do? They're going to, many of them are going to turn into oppressors. Why? Backdrop of Genesis. Solomon sees one more thing. Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw all toil and all skill in work coming from a man's envy of his neighbor. I've joked about this in front of you before, but competition is a real thing in the United States of America. Don't be deceived. Let me dissuade you of any thoughts that you have that people actually care about you. (laughs) Do you know why there's a Chick-fil-A and a Culver's and a KFC and a McDonald's and a Wendy's and an Arby's, these people are not that concerned that you eat well. They want to make a dollar, right? And I'm okay with that. I'm thankful for that. But everything is competitive, envy. I'm looking and I want that. This is what he saw. Do you see how he's moved from organizationally, the the, the courts, to societally, the oppressors, right into your backyard, the neighbor. This is important that we understand this progression of things he saw when we get to application. Do you see the shift? It's coming down. He looks broadly, then he looks a little more narrowly, and then he looks very narrowly. Well, if the courts don't enforce fairness and the society is oppressive, then to use an American expression, it is every man for himself. The rat race. That's what they call it, right? The rat race. You know what the problem with the rat race is? An old joke? Even if you win, you're still a... You're a rat. (laughs) Genesis 3, backdrop. The fall. All right, that's what Solomon has seen. Wow, that's tough. I gotta tell you what, before the good news comes, it gets a little darker even, because now we gotta think about what Solomon thinks about all this. The wisest man who ever lived. What does Solomon think? Back in chapter 3. Verse 17, I said in my heart, let me think about this. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter under heaven. The first thing Solomon thinks is, in the face of this injustice in the courts, and where there should be justice, there's wickedness, and where there should be righteousness, there's wickedness. Solomon reminds himself, God will fix this. What a great thing to remind yourself of. God will judge everything in his time. Now just a thought for a minute about uh, our desire for immediate justice. Can I help you with that for a moment? I used to, as a coach, yell and scream about injustice when the ball went off of one of their players, and the referee said, it's the other team's ball. I would come up from my seat. No! It's our ball! 
I went off them. You understand the basketball rule? And one day an official came up to me and said, Trey, I'm so tired of hearing you yell. And I'm not going to listen to you until when the ball goes off your kid and goes out of bounds and I give it to you that you come up and say, No! Give the ball to them! (laughs) He said, You don't care about right. You care about you. I sat down. He was not wrong. Just a thought about immediate justice and whether we really want it or not. Wouldn't it be great if after a driver cut you off on the road or ran you off the road that his car would break down five minutes later or burst into flames even better? Wouldn't that be great? Or if someone cheated you in business, they'd be bankrupt the next month? Wouldn't that be awesome? Or if someone got angry and yelled at you, their teeth would fall out that night while they were sleeping? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wonderful? Unfortunately, you would have to live in the same universe. You would have to live in the same universe. So if you gossiped about someone while you slept, your tongue would turn green. And every time you lusted or envied someone else, more of your hair would fall out. And every time you spent money on something... Oh, I shouldn't say this. I'm going to get in trouble. Every time you spent money on something you didn't need, the food in your refrigerator might rot overnight. You want to live in a world like that? Listen, friends, none of us want instant justice. It is the mercy and grace of God's patience with sin that is an incredible blessing. To all of us, lest we come under his immediate judgment. Oh, slow us down. (laughs) I think of that joke of the atheist who uh, was trying to um, make a point and said, yeah, if there's really a God, and he just cursed God and said, strike me with the lightning bolt right now. And the story goes on, and he looks at the Christian and says, see, you have no God. And the Christian said, what kind of God would he be if he acted on your timetable? Look at what it says. God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter under heaven. There was a time to boy born, a time to die, a time to plan, a time to... There is a time for judgment. Who knows when it is? God does. Solomon also thinks, he's got to figure this out though. God's conducting a test. Look what he says. I said in my heart with regard to the children of Adam, children of man, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are beasts. Say, what? No, God is testing us. Will we believe and act like we're just like the animals or like we're different than the animals? Genesis 1 and 2. Well, why would some, how does this test work? Verse uh, 18. Because what happens to the children of man is what happens to the beast. It's the same as one dies, so the other dies. Oh, oh yeah. Remember, this is life under the S-U-N. I have no empirical data for you. I can't show you the souls that are in heaven right now. So just under the sun, does it look any different? No, it looks no different. As one dies, so dies the other. They all go to the one place, all from the dust to dust return. I wrote, same breath, same death. Us and all the dogs that live at my house that I don't own. I don't own one. It's usually between three and five. We have the same breath. We have the same death. 
under the S-U-N. So I'm like, well, 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 there is no difference. Do you understand? I said this on our Creation Emphasis Sunday a couple of weeks ago. You understand that Solomon anticipated Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution, that people would want to define themselves as animals in the face of the empirical evidence that they could see on earth and then act like animals because they define themselves as animals. It was 3,000 years before Charles Darwin. God is te- we have failed the test. <laughs> Once I was a monkey swinging in a tree, and now I'm a doctor with a PhD. I, I mean, th- this is, this is the, the mantra in the culture. And Solomon anticipated in wisdom forever ago. There are differences that define us from the animals. Image of God, eternal destiny. Now, lest you think Solomon's being legitimate here, and you're like, no, this is what he's teaching. No, 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 no. Like, he asks these rhetorical questions. Verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth? Who knows? Well, in this setting right here, yes, he's asking this question rhetorically under the S-U-N. But later in the book, he's going to say this, when he gives divine counsel in chapter 12, when he is summing it all up, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Some of you will take pleasure and not take pleasure in this. You will identify with this. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. <laughs> it's a poem about getting old. It's a beautiful poem about getting old. And it figures at the end, he says, and the dust returns to earth and the spirit returns to God. When he's not asking rhetorical questions, he actually answers this issue later in the book. Do you understand that? He knows the difference. But under the S-U-N, this atheist, this godless perspective, he asks the question. He also thinks, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you're better off dead. You're better off dead. Maybe you're better off having never been born. If you're oppressed and there's no comfort, verse 2 of chapter 4, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. This is crazy, ruthless, in-your-face talk. Do you hear this? Actually, he says, but better than both is he who has not yet been and hasn't even seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Not just better off dead, better off unborn. We could dismiss this as crazy talk. Or we might ask ourselves, is he the only truth-telling person on the planet? You see, because if you are living under the S-U-N, apart from God, in a happy pagan setting in America, Lori and I have this expression, we're like, we have friends who don't know the Lord, and they're doing great. They're prospering financially with families and kids and vocationally, seem to be doing good. We say, oh, that's a happy pagan. Don't be deceived. Without Christ, don't be deceived. What a sad, I mean, it's just so in our face. Okay, we've got to keep moving. We've seen what Solomon sees. Again, moving from society to, or from courts to society to personal. And now what Solomon thinks. He's made some assessments. Lastly, what does Solomon advise? Here's our great need this morning, friends. In view of the wickedness, oppressions, and envy in the world, we need to enjoy our work with true and lasting peace. 
We need to enjoy our work with true and lasting peace. What does Solomon advise? When we get all the way back to chapter 3, verse 22, what about this court issue? What do we do? What about these, this, this big thing that's going on? Well, I saw, verse 22, there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Solomon says, you ready? This sounds kind of humanistic. But again, this is not very personal. This is societal. This is the courts. This is living in the world under the S-U-N. He says, stay happy, stay busy, and focus on what you have. Stay happy, stay busy, focus on what you have. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that's his lot. Do you understand the use of the word lot here? When they would cast lots, there was an element of chance. I would liken it in our culture to if we're going to play cards, I'm not a poker player, but I dealt you a hand and said you need to win no matter what I deal you. (laughs) And you need to bet all your money no matter what I deal you. You know, some hands are better than others, aren't they? There's time for this and time for that. There's time for a good hand, time for a bad hand. Know the difference. Make the most of the time that you have here on earth with the hand that you are dealt. Do you think you're going to change the courts? Maybe you will. Maybe that is the thing God called you to. He hasn't called me to it. Chapter 4, verse 4. Another piece of advice. There's no advice in 4, 1 through 3. It's important, and we'll come back to it. 4-4, don't get caught up in the survival of the fittest. Natural selection. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Don't join the rat race. (laughs) Don't be a rat. In fact, I gave you the whole Genesis backdrop. I wanted to give you one more. But I didn't want to confuse the Genesis. There's another significant Old Testament backdrop right here. What do you think of when you hear the use of the word neighbor if you're an Old Testament Jew? The second greatest commandment? And you shall envy your neighbor as yourself. You shall compete with your neighbor as yourself. That's not the second greatest commandment from Leviticus. Jesus was asked, and he said, the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Solomon has moved from the organizational, which is the courts, to the society, the oppressors, to you, the neighbors. That's where you live. You probably can't fix the courts, and you might not be able to change society, but what you do in your own life will make a difference. And Solomon here says that if you dive into the rat race and just buy into that mantra that my way at all costs, this is vanity and striving after the wind. You have embraced the wrong thing. You cannot serve both God and yourself, your success. You cannot. Verse 5, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. This is the other extreme. Uh, If I were using a modern metaphor, I'd say, don't put your head in the sand like an ostrich. (laughs) I'm not playing. I'm taking my toys and going home. (laughs) 
I'm not engaged at all. No, Jesus said we must be in the world, but not of the world. That means we're in the world. Don't check out. So the, those are the two extremes. The better advice comes in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Verse 4 showed us angry hands, competitive hands. Verse 5 showed us folded hands. Verse 6 says, hey, you know what? You need a handful of work and a handful of peace. A handful of contentment. Find peace. Solomon himself wrote earlier in his life in the book of Proverbs, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf. Would you like to eat a dinner of herbs? I mean, that's what they served you. <laughs> Here's your herbs. <laughs> better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened calf. Sounds better to me. And hatred with it. Yeah, a handful of work, but a handful of understanding, a handful of peace, a handful of contentment. Listen to what uh, Luke wote We're getting near the end here. And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor what your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. The body's more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you of more value than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon author of the book, in all his glory, was not arrayed like a lily of the field. And if God clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink and be worried, because that's what the nations of the world seek after. Courts, society, oppressors. And your father knows you need those things. Your Father knows you need those things. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and this stuff will be added to you. It'll come along. A hand of work and a hand of peace. A hand of contentment. Solomon says, in light of all the wickedness, oppression, and envy in the world, don't slave away in ruthless competition with your neighbors, but instead enjoy your work and the fruit of your work with quietness and true peace. Real contentment. I have to talk about that. Uh, we're reaching the very end here. I want to invite the praise team back to the platform. I want to invite the um, um, deacons to begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Part of our end of our service and taking the Lord's Supper, um, Pastor Brian's doing our instructions this morning, he will speak specifically about the source of true peace, where we get that contentment, and how we can live under the sun, S-O-N, rather than just the sun, S-U-N. I got about one paragraph left here. The title of my message today is Good, Better, Best. Did you see all the references to that in the text? Nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. Better is both who has not been. Better is a handful of quietness. We've also read there's no advantage 
for man over the beasts. That some, the dead, are more fortunate than the living. Can you hear all of this language of comparison? We've talked about competitiveness and envy. It's a big theme. It may be the thing that all of this hangs on. Good, better, best. Where do I get the good? Well, God created the universe, didn't he? And what did he say it was? It was good. Now, we've since messed that up, but that was good. Solomon's reminding us this isn't the way God intended it. Don't blame God for this mess. God didn't do it. Now we're in the mess. We're in the loom. The needles are pounding. The threads are everywhere. We crave something better. And we are trying to cope with the sinful realities that exist all around us. And this is life under the SUN. We're all born here. And we're all going to die here. In fact, hear the words of Solomon. If this is all there is, it would be better if we'd never been born. These are the stakes. This is the lot we've been given, the hand we've been dealt. We don't want or need more contented, happy, pagan people running around America thinking everything is great. They're going to die and go to hell apart from Christ. This passage is about earthly oppression under the SUN. But also under the SUN, Satan is a thief, a liar, a roaring lion who comes to steal, kill, and destroy our lives and the lives of everyone we know and love. There's great spiritual oppression in America as well that we don't see every day because we're happy, contented, spiritually blind Americans sometimes. We sometimes value the pleasures of this present day more than the eternal realities that God declares to us. We believe the lie of our eyes that this life offers the greatest hope. No, friends, this life is a mess we're trying to cope with. God made it good. It fell apart. Are there ways to make this life better? Yes. That's what we spent the message on. But now transitioning to the Lord's Supper and what I'll leave you with is that we would way rather have life under the S-O-N. That's the best. That's the best. In closing, listen to the words of Paul in his letter to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live on in the flesh, that's good. I have fruitful labor together with you. I don't know which will happen to me. My desire is to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. Good, better, best. I know Paul used the word better there. That's just because he's comparing two things. I'm pretty sure I have no heartburn telling you that in this context, Paul would say, yeah, going to Christ is also the best. Because a little later in his book, he wrote, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. True. Therein, judgment is destruction. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. This is the best. Don't settle for anything less than life in, with, and through the Lord Jesus who we'll celebrate now. Father, may your words go into our heart and grow. In Jesus' name, amen.